Welcome back to the Jordan Syatt Mini Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Israeli Defense Force soldier Rudy Rockman. He's actually a sniper in the Israeli Defense Forces, and he's on the ground right now in Israel. He's actually on base during this interview. He took some time in between missions to speak with me, which I am eternally grateful for. Now, if you listen to this entire episode, you're going to hear someone who is very objective, very straightforward, and above all, his main goal is peace between Israelis and Palestinians. I've followed Rudy for years online, and all he does online is he tries to create peace between these two peoples and educate the world on what peace can look like and how we can achieve it. He's truly an extraordinary person, and I admire him greatly. Now, because he's on base and because the internet connectivity wasn't the greatest, there are a couple very brief instances in which we lose Rudy, but he comes right back and you can absolutely hear the vast majority without any issues whatsoever. There are just a couple brief instances in which we lose him, so don't stop listening to the podcast when that happens. Just keep listening. He'll come right back in a few seconds. So... With that being said, this episode is is also a continuation from the initial episode I did on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I published that a few days after the October 7th massacre. We recorded this episode on November 1st, so a lot has happened since that initial podcast. The first one was a lot about the history of these two people, the history of the conflict, and how we have arrived at this point. But now on November 1st, 2023, there have been way more deaths on both sides, and Rudy gives a truly remarkable overview of what's going on, why it's happening, a lot of the propaganda on both sides, uh, how you can disseminate it, how you can know what's true and what's false, and also what you can do going forward to try to bring peace, not just in the Middle East and among Israelis and Palestinians, but wherever you are in the world to help reduce the noise, reduce the vitriol, and bring more positivity and and light to this world. So with that being said, let's get into the episode. All right, Rudy, uh, Rudy Rockman, do me a favor. Before we dive into the, the meat and potatoes of this podcast, could you just introduce yourself to my audience? Tell me, tell them who you are, what do you do? I, I've followed you for years. I followed your your information for years long before this October seventh massacre and this the the recent escalations in the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Um, can you just give an introduction to who you are and what you're doing and what what you've done before this and then what you're doing right now? Sure. So my name is Rudy. I'm a Jewish and Israel rights activist. I would say that my work primarily focuses on fixing five problems that I see as the things that I can do to change uh, with what our generation is facing. Number one is anti-Semitism, whether it's coming from the right to the left to any extremist groups. Number two is a lack of empowerment for the younger generation of Jews and allies. That we were taught a lot of us of how to practice Judaism, but not put Judaism into practice. We weren't given the courage or the tools to actually stand up. Number three, I would say it's a lack of vision that exists amongst our generation of Am Yisrael. Previous generations have uh, fought to get them to the next level, to the next stage, to the next place. And we as a generation of the Jewish people have no even idea. We've never even started the conversation of what the next chapter of Jewish history is. Number four, I would say, is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to bring both peoples together from the bottom up for us to transcend the conflict that we're in because there is no reality where either population disappears. And the fifth is uh, reuniting the tribe and the desert and connect as one bigger family. Now, also, um, as a part, I would say, of the first one, uh, when I was 17 years old in 2011, I joined the IDF. Um, I served as a paratrooper. And as a combat soldier, you're still in reserves until age 40. And so as a 30-year-old on October 7th, my paratrooper brigade reservist unit was called up. We fought for four days in Kfal Aza. Um, right on the day that it happened, we were one of the first units there. And uh, we fought Hamas, uh, saw atrocities, and were able to save a few of the civilians that were remaining. And from there, uh, we've been taken to several bases for training uh, to see what the next steps are for operations, which I can't disclose what we're doing and where we are, but uh, that's sort of been my last three weeks in a nutshell. Okay, so um, thank you for introducing all of that. There there are many different places I want to go. Um uh, usually my podcast is just on audio. I don't really upload visual, but I might be uploading this to YouTube as well. For for those who are just listening to it, I want just so they know what I'm looking at. I'm looking at you. You're in your IDF uniform behind you. You're clearly in a base. You're in a military base right now. It's uh, what time is it there right now? Uh, we are five forty p.m. 
540 p.m. It, look, it looks pitch black outside. I mean, you're you're literally on you're you're in you're you're serving in the military right now. Um, I want to talk about, and I actually wasn't planning to go here first, but since you brought up Kfar Aza uh, and, and you're fighting there, I'm sure as you know better than anyone, there have been many people who have been it's crazy denying the atrocities of October 7th. Um, and I want to be very respectful of, of what you went through and what you saw, but is there any way that you can give an idea of like, what is Kfar Aza? What is it? What happened on October 7th? And what did you encounter when you went there? Like when you were called up to your reserve duty, like what, what happened? What did you see? So it's not new that people deny the suffering or the humanity of the Jewish people. I mean, we saw that with people denying the Holocaust, shortly after the Holocaust and until this day, um, whenever the Jews are suffering, the groups that hate us, the people who hate us, don't want us to be suffering. And so they try to deny it in order to remove the sympathy that someone may have for the Jewish people. So this is not something new, unfortunately, that our people have faced. We've faced it for generations and generations, and this is just another evolution of that. So on uh, October 7th, um, everyone woke up in Israel to horrible videos of soldiers' bodies being dragged, of women who had just been raped, of you know people who had just been killed. And just like everyone else, Shabbat morning, I woke up uh, with my family, actually. A lot of my family members had come to Israel because we were supposed to have the wedding of my cousin that week, which unfortunately got canceled. And um, I woke up, started seeing some of these videos. Usually I'm not on my phone on Shabbat, but being that there was an emergency and we're in a time that looked like was uh, going into some sort of war, uh, I decided to go on my phone and to check what was going on. And around 9 p.m., I got a message from my officer saying we're being called up and go to this base. Now, as a reservist soldier, we do reserves a few times a year. where We train for a day like this, but uh, we weren't trained to be prepared to see a massacre. We were trained to fight other soldiers if there was an army that wanted to come in to attack Israel and to kill Jews or to kill Israelis. That That's what we'd be prepared for. No one ever told us that we'd be entering a massacre scene. So we drove from that base around 5 p.m. towards Kfal Aza. Kfal Aza is a small community, small village of Jews that is on the border of Gaza. And I remember even in the 20 minutes before we got to the to the city in itself, um, there were just bodies all over the streets. Some of them burnt, some of them blown to pieces. Some of them were terrorists, some of them were civilians. Cars flipped over, cars that were still on fire. And it was a scene out of a movie. You know, you, you just see there was like a, a war zone that had happened and you're coming right after that this just happened. Uh, we got right outside of Kfalaza. I remember looking on my, my left and seeing a tank going into the to the village um, and then looking and after the tank went past me, I saw like 10 bodies on the floor with a huge tarp. And then I recognized that those bodies um, had Israeli soldier boots, and those were actually IDF soldiers that had been killed. Um, then I hear all of a sudden Arabic speaking, and I realize there's a few special forces that had caught three of the terrorists that were right next to us that had just done the massacre. Um, and then right after that happened, there were a few uh, special forces units that were coming out of Kfal Aza, and two of them were holding babies that apparently their families had been killed, um, and their parents were gone, and one family of the um, we waited maybe an hour before we went into Falaza. We were just outside of it. In that time, there was a gas station uh, that we were right next door to. And we were thirsty. We didn't have water. So we went quickly in the gas station. The police says, take whatever you want. And I went to the water section where you have, you know, the cooler area of, of the, the products that are cooled. And I can see drag marks of blood on the floor of people who had been killed and dragged even in this uh, gas station. Um, some of the bottles and the drinks had blood stains all over them. So clearly there was some form of combat or fight that hadn't even gone in there. And we're, we're really like in shock. A few hours ago, we were in our civilian lives. It was the, still uh, supposed to be um, the morning that I would go with my grandfather to synagogue for Rosh Hashanah and Shabbat. Uh, my grandfather had sponsored a meal for the synagogue, so I was supposed to go there and, and be with him. And all of a sudden, a few hours later, I find myself in a horror scene. We went into Kwaza, and there were bodies everywhere, um, both of Hamas terrorists, but mostly of civilians at this point. Uh, some of them, again, blown to pieces where you see an arm here, the rest of the body there. Um, some of them 
burnt. Like you can literally see it looks like a statue almost like they like froze in, in the last motion that they had. And it's like a black crisp of a body and you can see bodies everywhere. And for four days, uh, nonstop, there were still Hamas terrorists there that were shooting at us, attacking us, coming out from homes that they were hiding or from holes that they were hiding. And for four days straight, we were fighting Hamas militants. Um, the few units that were there were saving the few civilians that had survived, which most of them had been killed at that point. And eventually on the fourth day, we were able to go into some of the houses because we were mostly staying on the outside. And I remember as we were going into one of the houses, um, soldiers told us, don't go in there. There are horrible things that happened. And I said, what happened? And he said, uh, they raped a woman to death with objects that they found in the house, uh, nice. penetrating her till she bled to death and burnt her baby in front of her. I have to see those images. Um, we walked out and, you know, stayed into the house until eventually we cleared all of the Hamas militants. And keep in mind, there's bodies everywhere for four days straight. So you can imagine the, the stench and the smell in the hot sun in, in the southern part of Israel. And then uh, finally in the day, Zaka, which is the unit in the army that um, picks up bodies, comes. And I remember at one point they brought a little bag out of a house and I realized there was a baby and you can still see the knife sticking out of the bag um, that they had killed the baby with. And just horrible stuff that we had witnessed. Um, the house right in front of us, the family, the two parents had been killed, but they were able to save two of the daughters, the children, by putting them in closets that later were rescued. But the one of the third child, the baby, is still missing. They don't know what happened, if that baby was killed, if that baby was kidnapped. And, you know, it was a lot to deal with for four days. And while that's happening, tons of rockets flying over our heads. One of the rockets hit us, you know, a few meters away from us. And, you know, you can see all the shrap metal that they pack inside and little BBs of uh, metal balls to try to inflict as much injury as possible. Um, and then towards the end of our time there, when Zaka was leaving, you know, those um, like hospital or ambulance trucks where there's like a window in the back. You can still see what's what's in the what's inside of the car from that back window. The Zaka trucks, which is the unit that picks up the body, you have that kind of window as well. And as some of these trucks were driving out, you can just see a pile of bags, a pile of bodies from that window. And um, it was horrible. It's something that uh, is engraved in all of our memories and all of our minds that we're going to have to live with those images forever. Um, but either way, uh, irregardless of what we saw, we understand that this is why we're here to prevent this from happening and to make sure that our people are safe. And that's why we're here. And I would like to say that, um, you know, as a civilian who came back into this, I can speak as an individual, but I can say that every soldier that I've met personally in my service or now in reserves or in this time, none of us want to be at war with Palestinians. None of us see this as a war between Israelis and Palestinians or Jews versus Muslims or Jews versus Arabs. We see this as a war of taking out Hamas that has stated several times that its goal is to wipe out the Jews from the rest of the world and who has several times tried to kill Jews uh, in the masses. And so our goals now is to make sure that Hamas is taken out, uh, to free Israelis and to free Palestinians from that reality. And I hope that we'll be able to do that with a minimal amount of casualties on both sides because no one wants to see anybody dying and neither from this conflict. So that's a little uh, idea of what we went through in those uh, four days. Man, thank you for sharing that. It's horrifying and there's no word to describe like other than horrifying is all i can come up with but uh thank you for sharing that i feel like in a unfortunate day and age in which propaganda is coming out faster than ever which people are denying it already uh i appreciate you being willing to share that um and thank you for everything you're doing for for all of israel and for also for all of the innocent palestinians that are now in in harm's way as a result of it you know, one of the reasons that I followed you years ago is because what I've seen you doing is your you want peace for both sides. And, and and now more than ever, I think you're really talking about it in a way that is resonating with people. But um, but it's unfortunate that it's, it's happening in the context of of post October seven. Um, one of the things, and I don't know how much you know about me or my audience. I, I did a podcast 
a couple of days after October 7th, sort of discussing the history of these two people uh, and and trying to be as fair and objective as I can to both sides. Uh, and I know that's what that's what you do as well. And and one of the lines I've learned from you that I think is, is very important is, you know, it's not like we're two different people, like we're cousins. The Palestinians and the Israelis were cousins and, and we should be able to, to coexist with one another. Um, can you talk about about who like I know you said it, it's it's versus Hamas. Can you talk about Hamas? What does Hamas do? Why is Hamas the enemy of not just Israelis and Jews, but also the Palestinian people? Like, wh- why is it so important that we remove Hamas? Why is this necessary for the peace of not just Jews and Israelis, but for the innocent Palestinians who are now in the crossfires and the crosshairs uh, and in their lives are in danger? Why is it so important that we get Hamas out? So first of all, to talk about Israelis and Palestinians, um, this is something that I've been focused on for many years now. Uh, I don't wait for there to be conflicts to try to create unity between both of our peoples because when there's conflict, both sides get polarized and there's no more conversation happening. And the whole point of the work that I'm doing is to prevent us from going into war. And the reality is that war is not benefiting either the Israeli people or the Palestinian people. Both sides are dying. Both sides are losing family members and people are being injured from this reality. So, you know, at some point we need to both realize that there is no future where Israelis or Palestinians disappear. That doesn't exist. That reality is not an option. So as long as we keep pushing these narratives of zero-sum games of if you're pro-one, you have to be anti-the other, and one side's the good side and the other side's the bad side, that is just fuel to continuing this conflict that prevents us from transcending and creating something here that actually works for both. And so that's a lot of the work that I do because I realized long ago that the reason we got into this conflict to begin with is the British. The British did exactly what they did everywhere that they colonized, whether Pakistan, India, in Afghanistan, in Nigeria, which is they divided and conquered. That's how they controlled societies. They convinced the Israelis and the Jews that all Palestinians and all Arabs were bad by appointing Hajjamin al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, an individual who was a vehement anti-Semite, met with Hitler. There's many pictures of him with Hitler saying that when you'll be done with the Jews in Europe, come and kill the rest of them in the Middle East. And so why would the British appoint this individual as the leader of the Palestinians if they didn't want to give the impression to the Jews that this is what the Palestinians represented and making us fear or hate uh, or reject the idea of uniting with Palestinians and the rest of the Arab world. Now, how did they convince the Arab world and the Palestinians that the Jews were the bad guys? Well, in 1917, um, the British created a one-page document with one paragraph on it called the Balfour Declaration. And in this Balfour Declaration, it states that uh, the British have the intention of creating a state for the Jews in this land that they weren't even controlling at the time. Because in 1917, the land was controlled by the Ottomans. So how does that make sense that the British are promising to give a land to the Jews that they don't even control to begin with. And then when they did control the land already in the late 30s and 40s when we were having the Holocaust, you would think that common enemy of the Jews and the British is the Germans. And if your intention was truly to create a state for the Jews, that you would allow the Jews to escape Germany to come to Israel, which is what you had stated, but yet they didn't. They forced those ships that were trying to come into the land back to Europe, back to the slaughters. And even after the Holocaust with the white papers, they were doing everything in their power to prevent Jews, which you can see in their actions, their goal was never to leave Israel. But Israelis that were here eventually terrorized the British army to a point that they eventually left. According to official British because of Jewish terrorism. And so we made them leave and declared our own liberation. But it really goes back to, okay, so if they never had a goal to create a country for us, why would they write the Balfour Declaration? Well, if you listen to most um, activists that are Palestinians and Arabs that are anti-Israel, they will always reference the Balfour Declaration of saying, ah, you see, you guys are an extension of European colonialism and a project of what the West wanted to do here. And that was their exact goal. They wanted to give the impression that the idea of Zionism Zionism means the right for the Jewish people to self-determine on their ancestral homeland. It has nothing to do with the conflict. It has nothing to do with Palestinians. It's coming from the word Zion, which means Jerusalem. It's the idea we have a right to live here. They wanted to attach that idea with Western European colonialism in order for that idea and our people to be rejected. And they've succeeded. 
they succeeded and they convinced both sides that we were each other and each other's enemies and because of that we fought a war in 48 we fought a war in 67 we fought a war in 73 and in those wars there were many displacements of both jews and palestinians which today is the reality of what we're living with the consequences of those wars the failure that our previous generations had in coming together and so what i try to focus on is fixing and healing that relationship for us to transcend because neither aspirations, if you break down what the aspirations of Palestinians are, which are different than what our aspirations are, they don't contradict one another. Both can happen. And if you break down the injustices that both experience, which are different and are not a competition, you can fix both injustices that don't have to compete with one another. They're not mutually exclusive. So a lot of my work focuses on healing that relationship. Now, in terms of Hamas that uh, was elected by the Palestinian people, but at that time uh, was not seen as what it is today. Originally, Hamas, when they came to power, they were elected democratically, but they were positioning themselves as a very progressive uh, voice for Palestinians. There would be a potential partner for peace that wouldn't be violent like the PLO uh, of Yasser Arafat's before that had committed intifadas. And so people were very open-minded, but the moment that they took power, they killed all their oppositions in political offices. That was Fatah. They dragged their bodies in the streets with motorcycles, and they took over Gaza, burned down the greenhouses that were left over for them when Israel unjustly pulled out uh, Israelis living in Gaza and created uh, in their charter. It usually it stated in, in the original charter that their goal was not only to kill the Jews in Israel, but the rest of the Jews in the rest of the world. And so Hamas's business model is to keep Palestinians in a perpetual cycle of violence and suffering because the world tends to care about Palestinians. But of course, what's interesting with that is they only care about Palestinians when asked to do with Israel. Because when Palestinians were dying by the thousands in the Syrian civil war, no one was talking about that. When Palestinians are by the hundreds of thousands of refugee camps in Lebanon and in Jordan, I bet you most of those people in these pro-Palestinian rallies, they're not, they don't even know that there are hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon and in Jordan. They don't even know about Black September of what the Jordanian army did to the Palestinians. They don't know about the suffering that they deal in the Egyptian border. They don't know about the suffering that they face under Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. So it seems to me that they only care about Palestinian suffering when it comes to Israel, which there is, and it's legitimate, and we must talk about it. But because the world is so obsessed with Israel irrationally, they take all the context and they give money to support Palestinians in Gaza, but all that money goes to Hamas. And all the leaders of Hamas are all billionaires. Now you ask yourself, are they really good with investments? Do they have some sort of hedge fund? Did they invest in cryptocurrency? And the answer is no. All that money that they have that made them billionaires is actually from all the aid that the world is giving to the Palestinians, supposed to go to the Palestinians, and they use that money to reinvest in terrorism by building tunnels, by buying rockets, by creating all this militia that will try to kill as many Jews as they can, and putting Palestinians in harm's way for them to be killed. So let's say, for example, what's happening right now. You have bases in the in Israel that are not next to any civilian areas. There's a difference between a civilian and a militant or soldier, right? But for in Gaza, what Hamas does is it creates those sites for themselves, their headquarters, under hospitals, they shoot rockets from schools, they shoot rockets from homes, from apartments. They don't go to the side and, and fight as an as a army or as a, a militant group that would be separate from civilians. They intentionally fire rockets on Israeli civilians, targeting Israeli civilians, killing Israeli civilians from Palestinian civilian homes. Now, when Israel strikes back, because as a country, you have to defend your people, when you have thousands of rockets raining on your population, you have to put an end to those rockets raining down on you. What Israel does is actually the most humane thing that it can do. The civilians in that specific house to get them to remove. Now, when Israel bombs, it doesn't randomly bomb areas. It bombs specific targets where Hamas militants are shooting rockets onto Israel. And what does it do? The first thing it does is it calls all the phones and sends text messages to all the people in the building saying, get out now. We're about to strike on this house. This is a Hamas site, and we're going to strike, number one. Number two, they send a knocker bomb, which is like a light, loud firecracker noise. It's not an actual explosion that lets people know, whoa, there's actually a real bomb that's going to come. It's like what they call knocker bomb to warn an actual bomb coming soon. And the last thing they do is they send a drone that releases leaflets that is written in Arabic saying, we're going to be able to strike this house or this apartment at this time. So please leave and make sure to go out. So they're doing everything to prevent 
civilian casualties. Although they have no other choice to fire back, right? If you're being fired upon, if your family is being fired upon, what are you going to do? You're going to do whatever it takes to stop. Now, of course, you don't want to hurt civilians, so you're going to do everything you can to prevent that. But Hamas forces those civilians to stay in those homes. They have messages of saying, don't listen to the Zionist occupying army. They're just trying to manipulate you. They're not trying to get you out. Or if you leave, we will kill you, so might as well not leave. And they force civilians to be there in order to increase the amount of civilian casualties on the Palestinian side and then to use their bodies and their lives and their deaths to the world and saying, look what Israel is doing. And so it's such a messed up image. But I would tell everyone who cares about this, who talks about Palestinian lives dying, which, again, to me is my family, is my cousins. You know, first of all, I care about all humans, but I care even more about Palestinians. And, you know, we're talking about the, the, the similarities. I mean, 30 to 60 percent of Palestinians have Jewish DNA. Many of them are Jews that were converted over time to Christianity and Islam and Arabized over time and became part of this new identity called Palestinian that was formed in the past 2000 years. But there are relatives, right, more so than just being descendants of Abraham with Jews and Arabs, we're even closer to them. And so the reality is that they're using their lives in order to pin this image of Israel. And if people care about Palestinians dying, if they care about the what, they must also care about the why, because you must understand why something is happening in order to stop it and prevent it from happening again. If you go to a doctor and you have symptoms and you're saying, okay, my chest is hurting here and you know I, I cough and I get super tired, you're not just telling the doctor these symptoms for the sake of finding a way to mend the symptoms. You're trying to find what the source of these symptoms are. You might have a cancer. You might have diabetes. You might have something very serious that you need to figure out now so you can catch it in time to save your life. That is the point. So if someone is talking about the what, they're just talking about the symptoms. But if you care about the source, you would talk about why it is happening, provide the context and nuances from both sides in order to prevent it from happening again. And that's something a lot of people are missing that claim to be pro-Palestinian. And my message to many Palestinians, amongst many other messages that I have, is be very careful who's supporting you because many of your supporters amongst you don't truly care about you. They're using your cause to be able to fight the Jewish people. And as long as there's a reality where we're fighting each other and trying to convince the rest of the world how the other side is bad, our conflict and our children will have to face repeatedly what we've had to face. And so the question is, there will the answer is that there will be a generation that comes together. The question is, which one will it be? Man, you're so articulate. I, I appreciate this. I think what a lot of people are going to be very surprised about is to hear how a soldier in the IDF is talking about this situation. I think especially with all the propaganda going on, people would imagine, especially like I've seen so many videos, as I'm sure you have, like of Israelis, uh, Israelis like cheering when Palestinians die and like the Israelis like don't want uh, peace with the Palestinians. Meanwhile, there have been numerous uh, 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 two state solutions that Israel has passed. Israel has agreed to, but uh, Hamas or, or the PLO or whatever has not agreed to it. Um, to hear an Israeli and specifically an Israeli in the IDF talking about wanting peace and actually being cousins and, and related to these people, I think is going to be very important for people to hear and understand that that we do absolutely want peace. We don't wish death upon innocent civilians. Uh, it's the the last thing that we want. And and so one thing actually I want to talk about in, in the podcast that I did uh, solo, I did talk about the history just to give people context of these two people, uh, of these uh, these two groups. Um, but right now, you know, I, I said on October 7th, I posted about it. I said, watch very quickly. You're going to start seeing Israel be made out to be the aggressor. Israel made out to be the the oppressor Israel made out to be the, the bad guy in this situation, uh, even though we just saw the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust. And of course, within 24 hours, that's exactly what was going on. Uh, and I'm seeing a lot of propaganda around what Israel is doing. Can you talk about what's going on right now in terms of uh, the IDF, what they're doing in Gaza? Uh, can you talk like, does Israel just, is it indiscriminately bombing civilians? Like, do they want civilians to die? Like, obviously there have been, there have been innocent Palestinians killed and, and every single uh, innocent individual, Israeli or Palestinian, it, it, it's too much. It, it, it's too many innocents killed. It's, it's, no one is cheering for that, especially on on from the IDF. Can you talk about like what is the IDF telling you? Like, do they want you to just kill innocent Palestinians? Like, can you talk about what you're hearing as an IDF soldier? Sure. So first of all, I would say that what I'm looking to create between Israelis and Palestinians is not just peace, but is justice. 
because talking about peace without justice is like expecting that we're going to live in a reality where two or more parties don't have any incentives to fight each other. But for that to happen, there has to be incentives where everything is already fixed. And that reality cannot happen until we fix the reality for Palestinians. I would say, although Israel is not responsible for the creation of this conflict and the suffering of Palestinians, it does today have the power, so it is responsible to correct it. It is responsible to fix it. You know, a lot of Jews have this uh, saying for thousands of years, it's been our mission statement of doing tikkun olam and olagwim, to heal the world and to be a light upon the nations. Well, we need to start by doing tikkun babaytim which is to heal our own home with our own cousins before we talk about the rest of the world and the rest of the nations and the rest of the problems that exist on earth. So I think Israel has to take a responsibility to heal the reality and to create justice for Palestinians and to find out how to create if it's reparations, if it's right of return, if it's access to movement and freedoms, things that are difficult to talk about, we need to understand what are the needs of Palestinians and find a way to build it in a way that doesn't take away from the needs of Israelis. Because again, we need, don't need to use one aspiration to combat another one. We need to find a way to merge both, and it is possible to do. Now, in terms of Hamas and what's happening right now, well, Israel has entered into Gaza. It's going in and out. Some units have you know, been able to rescue a hostage. Other units have been, you know, gravely affected. I think there was about 13 or 14 IDF soldiers that were killed uh, last night. One of them is actually uh, my brother's uh, good friend. Uh, his girlfriend and the girlfriend of the soldier that was killed are best friends. So they knew each other through that. And unfortunately, he died. Uh, and, you know, this is a reality that we're facing. We're at war. And when you're at war, there are people dying on both sides. Now, Israel never attacks civilians. Never. Um, it has Ruach uh, Tzahal, which is like the ethics of the army. And never are you allowed to open fire on a civilian. Only you can open fire on someone who is a terrorist. And if that terrorist is neutralized in the sense that, let's say, they no longer have a weapon, they can no longer shoot you, you're not allowed to just shoot to kill. And even if that terrorist is coming towards you, without a weapon, then you're only allowed to shoot knee down. And why knee down? Because you're going to stop them from moving. And if you shoot above the knee, they might bleed out from an artery. So everything is built within the army for you to minimize using your weapon. Now, when Israel is striking with this air force, it's striking specific targets. And it's striking only targets in which they have no other choice because there are Hamas militants there that are attacking Israel. And it's warning before it strikes. So what else does someone want to do? Like a lot of people are saying, oh, well, it's not proportionate because in Israel they killed 1,400 and in Gaza way more. So the, my, my answer to them is like, oh, so you think because uh, Hamas killed, let's say, 700 women that Israel should go to Gaza and pick out 700 women and say, okay, let's kill these 700 women so it can be proportionate? Like what kind of logic is that? Ideally, there should not be one innocent person dying. One innocent person dying on either side is one person too much. And so there's a reality where innocent people are dying because that's what happens when we're at war, which is why we need to do everything to prevent us from getting into this situation. But again, if we want to understand why these people are dying because we truly care about them, we need to look at the entire context, all the nuances of the situation to find the source of the problem, to heal that source of the problem and to prevent it from happening, which is why I talk often that getting rid of Hamas will also free the Palestinians. They should have their own representation. They should have people that truly represent their population, that give them rights, that care about their people, that has freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of ideas, and we will be able to build something together. And I hope that we can do that soon. The first Hamas has to go. So <clears throat> the things that I'm I'm focusing on talking about, uh, I want I want you to know I, I I'm focusing a lot on what I'm being messaged about. I've lost thousands and thousands of followers since I've started posting about this. And I'm getting a lot of people. My audience is a very science-based audience and an audience that uh some of them are very like uh, some of them are Jewish, some of them are Palestinian, uh, but most of them they they want to just know what's going on. And there's being there's a lot of propaganda and a lot of uh, views from both sides that are trying to be shoved down their throat, which is why I'm trying to get a really uh, a, a solid understanding and an objective, unbiased understanding of, of what's happening on the ground there. Now, one of the the questions that I get from people is say, okay, so Israel sends these knocker bombs, they sends these flyers, and they say you got to leave. The, the side that, that the other side, they say, well, where are they supposed to go? Where are they supposed to go? Um, uh, how is that fair to them? And and what I always say is like, well, well, listen, number one, I don't know any other military in the world that does give fair warning, uh, especially to their to their enemy combatants. Um, number two is 
I, I've heard, and I would love your, your insight in this, that Hamas is actually preventing innocent civilians from leaving their homes, that Hamas is not letting these innocent Palestinians from leaving uh, because Hamas knows that if they can get videos and images of these dead civilians after Israel warning them to leave, then they can use that to help win the the PR war, the propaganda war. Is that accurate? Like, Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's absolutely accurate. Um, I mean, there are recordings of Hamas militants, uh, whether it's video recordings and voice recordings of them telling um, Palestinians that you cannot leave their homes. One of the arguments that they use is they say, well, this is a fear tactic that the Zionist occupying army is trying to create to scare you. So don't fall prey to it and stay in your home. In other cases, it's telling them that if you are to leave this house, we will kill you. And there's video evidence of that. And there's video evidence of also uh, Palestinians getting calls, being warned, getting SMSs, leaflets being drawn, the knocker bombs. So the, all the facts are there. If someone really wants to look into it, all that is there. And people in Gaza will tell you that this happens if you're speaking to someone who's truly unbiased and will tell you what it is, including the suffering that they're going through. Because let's not try to minimize that there's a tremendous amount of suffering that's happening to the Palestinian side. It's not to minimize it at all. But the reality is that the reason it's happening is because Hamas is shooting rockets and raining rockets onto Israeli civilians. Israel has a responsibility to protect its people. Jews, Muslims, those Arabs, Bedouin, uh, Christians, whatever one is in this land, if you are part of the land of Israel, the government, the country has a responsibility to protect you. And so I would ask those people, okay, what would you do as a country if another country or another region was raining rockets onto your civilian population? Wouldn't you do everything to stop it? Now, of course, if that army or those militant groups were shooting rockets from civilian areas that you didn't want to affect, that you didn't want to hit, you would do everything possible to prevent civilians from dying. So you would warn and you would find ways for getting the civilians out. But let's say that that army is forcing the civilians to stay in those homes and still shooting rockets at you. What are you going to do? You're just going to accept your people to be burned and to be blown up to pieces? No, you're going to fire back and you have no other choice but to fire back. We're put into an impossible situation. But how someone always takes this context out and tries to see Israel as a bad side, which, by the way, they talk about Palestinians uh, being killed from Israel firing back. But why don't you talk about Jews being killed? I mean, if you want to be nuanced, talk about both sides being killed. There's deaths on this side and deaths on that side. But it's always only caring about Palestinians being killed, never about Jews, and taking the context out of it in order to prevent the person to truly understand why this is happening and just riding on these struggles, riding on the deaths of my cousins, the Palestinians, in order to use them as political ammunition to demonize Israel. And then some people say, well, you know, criticizing Israel is not anti-Semitic. And they're right. I don't know one person in Israel that doesn't criticize the Israeli government. But all those people criticizing the Israeli government, they're being very specific. They're saying, I'm against this policy because X, Y, Z, and I think this should be done better. I'm against this politician because of his or her ideas or because of their stances. They're telling you exactly what's wrong and how it could be better. But they're not demonizing. They're not dehumanizing. They're not delegitimizing and they're not holding double standards. When you cross the line and you're trying to dehumanize and demonize Israel and the Jewish people, when you're delegitimizing our right to be human beings by removing posters of missing people, we don't have a right to mourn our losses. We don't have a right to care about our people who are still kidnapped. When you're delegitimizing our existence and our right to exist, when you're holding a double standard that you care so much about indigenous liberation, but when the Jews achieve our indigenous liberation, now you call us the colonizers or you claim to care about Palestinians, but when Palestinians are dying elsewhere, you don't talk about them, but you only talk to them about this situation. That's not criticizing Israel. That's being against the Jewish people. And there are different forms of being against a group of people, right? Let's say that you're the, someone's a racist, right? There are many ways one can be a racist. One can say that they want to eliminate all black people. Horrible, right? One can say, well, but they want black people to be slaves. Horrible. One can say, well, I don't want black people to be slaves, but I don't think that they should have equal rights. Horrible. Like, there are different ways of being racist. There are different ways of being against the Jews. person can say that they want to eliminate all the Jews. That's what the Nazis and other people have said in the past, including Hamas. That's horrible. That's anti-Semitic. A person can say, well, I just want the Jews to be kicked out of our country, which many people have said in the past. That's also anti-Semitic. But if you're also against the Jewish rights to self-determination, that's also a form of being against the Jews. It's like saying, well, you like black people, but you don't like black people having rights. It's like, what are you, what are you talking about? You like Jews, but 
you don't want Jews to be able to live in their home, that, that is also a form of being anti the Jewish people. And I think it's important that we're able to narrate our own story. Like I'm comparing right now to other minority groups. You wouldn't want to hear about black rights from KKK members. You wouldn't want to hear about women rights from misogynists. So the people that are listening to voices about this conflict, why are the only people you're listening to about who the Jewish people are, their suffering, their struggles and their aspirations and their rights? Why are the only people you're listening to is the people who are anti-Israel and anti-Jewish people? You should be listening to the Jewish people if you want to understand who we are. It's a great point. It's a great point. Um, another common question I'm getting uh, is about Israel being, and I know you're going to laugh and hear this, being an apartheid state, uh, Israel uh, committing genocide against the Palestinian people. Uh, and whenever people ask me this, I, I always ask, have you ever been there? Have you ever been? I, and and often they'll get defensive. They'll be like, "Well, I don't have to be there in order to, uh, to to be able to sympathize with them. Like, I don't have to go to Uganda to sympathize with people in Uganda." It's like, no, I understand that. But anyone who spent a brief amount of time in Israel can very quickly see how many how diverse it is there, all the rights that people have there. A, a, a quick cursory amount of research will show you uh how how uh arabs serve in the supreme court how arabs serve a, a, as judges as doctors as lawyers as there are christians there's muslims there's jews can you talk about the the idea of israel being an apartheid state and, and talk about the the quote-unquote genocide that israel and ethnic cleansing that that people claim israel is trying to to do against the palestinians you know, you used a lot of uh, loaded terms that people use against Israel, apartheid, uh, settler colonialism, ethnic cleansing, genocide. And it's interesting because when you think about who's actually done that in history, you would realize that it's European nations, white nations, Western nations. And the people who are right now blaming Israel for those very same ideas that their ancestors have committed is usually the far left of those nations today. Mm -hmm. And so what the far left is really doing is they're feeling so guilty for what their ancestors have done. But rather than looking in the mirror and saying, we messed up, we need to fix our problems, they're using the Jews as a way to remove that guilt and to place those ideas onto us. Now, I can break down each one of those terms. First of all, settler colonialism and, and colonialism in, in general is taking over a land as a foreign country and removing those resources and exporting it to a motherland. I mean, the motherland of the Jews is Judea. That's why we're called Jews. You dig in the land and you find ancient Jewish history from thousands of years ago. There was a constant Jewish presence in this land. And since Judea was destroyed by another Western white imperial nation called the Romans, there was never a country built on this land. There was always a piece of land amongst vast territories, whether it was uh, the Romans and the Byzantines and the Ottomans and later the British until eventually we liberated and created uh, the state of Israel. We rebirthed our civilization. We decolonized our civilization. Now, in terms of um, genocide, right? Genocide is a, is a term that depicts the mass murder of a population where huge amounts of that population uh, decreases. And the intention behind this is to kill a large amount of that population. Well, since 1948, after all the wars and all the conflicts that we've been through, the Palestinian population has grown eightfold. So that must be the worst kind of genocide that ever existed because it's actually the opposite of a genocide. Now, this doesn't mean that there haven't been many Palestinians who've unfortunately lost their lives and that they're innocent in the process of war and that there have been many people who you know, were displaced in the process. Absolutely, there were injustices when we were at war. That's why we shouldn't be at war. That's what happens in war. All these people that are so gung-ho on attacking the other side and, and saying all these like violent things with the rhetoric, do you know what that leads to? Do you know what war looks like? It looks like both of our people dying. That's what it looks like. There's a response to what you're saying. It's eventually going to get to real life consequences. And both of our peoples are going to die. Apartheid is a term that, first of all, is very specific to one country. To South Africa. So any use of the term apartheid outside of the context of South Africa is really uh, hijacking a term of another experience and appropriating it to something else. Now, if we want to understand apartheid, it was really one country, one government with different rights for different peoples based on what they looked like, right? Everyone in Israel has equal rights. 20% of Israeli population are Israeli Arabs slash identifying also as Palestinians, depending on the individual, and they have full equal rights. 
they serve in the army if they choose to do so, whereas Israeli Jews have to do so. They go to schools like everyone else. They become doctors and lawyers and judges like everyone else. They vote like everyone else. They have full equal rights within Israel. So if it was an apartheid, you'd have different rights for different people. But that's not what's happening in Israel now. In Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, what is not currently a part of Israel, and this is like disputed territory, the reality that was created there post the Oslo Accords is that you have area A, B, and C. In area A, it's completely under the control of the Palestinian Authority. This is where most Palestinians live in the West Bank, and they live under their authority. I, as a Jew, don't have a right to go into area A. It says there's big signs right out area A written in red that says, entrance for Israeli civilians is illegal and prohibited. Although there are many Israeli Arabs who go in and go out all the time, it's really for Israeli Jews that are not permitted to go there. Now, you have area B that is mostly agricultural land and roads, which is mutually controlled by both Israel and the Palestinian Authority. And then you have area C, which is mostly Jewish land where mostly Jews are living. Now, they don't have rights into Israel those who are living in area A, because they're living under a different piece of land, under a different autonomy. The same way I, as an Israeli, don't have rights under them because I'm living in a different piece of land under a different autonomy. Same thing with Gaza, different land under Hamas. Gazans don't have a right to come into Israel and don't have rights under Israel because they're not living in Israel. I, as a Jew, as an Israeli, don't have rights into Gaza because I don't fall under the authority of Hamas and I'm not actually living there. So where's the apartheid? There is. It's actually the opposite of apartheid. It's different lands for different peoples living under different authorities, and you get the right to what you have based on the authority that you're living in. So it's opposite. It's like someone saying, well, someone in China doesn't have rights uh, in France like uh, of a French person. Well, it's like, yeah, because they're Chinese from China and they're not French from France and they're not living in that land. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Now, I will say that for me, the fact that the land is divided is an injustice. I want this entire land to be one. I'm against the two-state solution. Most Jews mm. are against it. Most Palestinians are against it. And what I would like to see is a free reality from the river to the sea where we can all live freely in this land. That's what I want to see. So the injustice that exists is that I don't get a, a right to go to Hebron where my ancestors are buried. I don't get a right to go to Shem where my ancestors are buried. I don't get a right to go to these places that are part of the cradle of Jewish civilization. And it's also an injustice that Palestinians living in these areas cannot go to Akko and to Yaffa and to Haifa and to other places that they're connected. So there's a limitation of movement on both sides, depending on which authority you live under and where you're living, not who you are. Because again, if you're an Israeli Arab slash Palestinian, you have full equal rights in Israel and you can go wherever you want. So the, the, the term apartheid not only is an appropriation of another experience, but then is completely not an explanation of what is happening. And if Palestinians, and this is another message to Palestinians, if you truly want to end the injustice of the limitation of movement that exists for me and for you, then let's be specific about what we want to end. Let's be specific of the problematic reality where there are checkpoints for me and for you to be able to travel. And let's be specific about that in order to change it. Don't just hijack another people's term that doesn't apply here to try to vilify and demonize the Jewish people and then allow the extremes of other societies to get rid of their guilt by pinning these problems onto us and sort of uh, you know, exporting their uh, problems onto our conflict and, and really being so happy that we're at war and, and selling weapons to both sides and profiting while they're at it. So we need to start waking up as to the reality and uh, be able to build a better future. But the only way we build a better future, like I said before, is not by demanding peace, it's by achieving justice. And that justice goes for all the people in this land, Israelis and Palestinians. Rudy, thank thank you so much. That you are so well spoken. Yeah, I think you you uh, I think you're going to surprise a lot of people with this, and I hope uh, that they follow you and that they can. Can you tell people where they can follow you for for more information and more updates from you? Yeah, so on social media, you can Facebook, uh, Instagram. It's under Rudy Israel. My Hebrew name is Israel, so Rudy underscore Israel. Uh, TikTok, uh, Twitter, YouTube, everything else is on Rudy Rockman, my last name. Um, and yeah, you can find the content that I post there, uh, whether it's uniting the tribes of Israel with a project that I'm doing called We Were Never Lost or uh, uniting between Israelis and Palestinians. Lots of videos that we do uniting different leaders of different communities and having us understand each other's narratives and aspirations or creating content that combats anti-Semitism. So all that is posted online on all those platforms. Thank you. I'll make sure I share that.
Um, and and Rudy, one last question because you have such a unique insight into this. Uh, you know, you're a soldier on the ground. You also you you you've you you have very unique insight that I don't think the vast majority of people uh, will be able will be able to understand. You're seeing all the propaganda coming out on social media and online. You're also there on the ground right now. If you had one message, and maybe you've already said it, but I want to give you an opportunity just to potentially either reiterate, reiterate it or say something different. Um, if you had one message to try and to help educate people about what's going on and to try and hopefully bring an end to what's happening right now, um, what would your message be to people who are being inundated with propaganda, who don't know what to believe and for, for how we can move forward as, as a people, as a, as a humanity to lead to a better future? Well, for the outsiders that are not Israelis, that are not Palestinians, that are viewing this conflict from an external lens, uh, you have to understand that any effort or energy that you put into this has to be something that brings nuance to both sides, that doesn't demonize either side, and that allows both sides to come together. If you're doing anything else to divide us, to make one side look like the bad guy and the other side look like the good guy, you are part of the problem and you're pouring fuel onto our fire, and I ask you to stop. Now, for Israelis and Palestinians, I hope that we can understand that we are family, uh, that there is no reality where our descendants won't be here, that we will all have kids living in this land. And the question for our generation is, do we want to pass on the world to our kids in a reality that they experience justice, that our aspirations are fulfilled, and that the injustices are ended? And if we do want to do that, it's not by making the other side look like the bad guy. It's not by talking to the rest of the world and trying to make the other side look bad. It's not by fighting each other. It's not by killing each other. It's not by hating each other. It's by realizing we both have a place on this land. We are both eternally connected to this land and building up from the bottom up. Because if you look at the civil rights movement, it wasn't from the top down. If you look at women's rights movement, it wasn't from the top down. It was a shift of society's view on issues from the bottom up. So I don't have faith in the Palestinian Authority or Hamas to be able to do this. I also don't have faith in the Israeli government uh, that thinks very short term because of how the government is set up with its parliamentary system to care about long term solutions. I look at it as the responsibility of us on the ground as younger generations that are now going into positions of power and influence in this world, who have the ability to create change in this world. We need to be the ones that says enough is enough. Let's actually sit down. Let's make a list of what are the top 10 things need for your aspirations? What are the top 10 things you need for your aspirations? And then we break them down. And I've done this several times with Israelis and Palestinians. We realize, wait a minute. Your needs don't contradict my needs. So why did we never try to build a solution based on that, right? To say the solution doesn't do that because both of us want to live from the river to the sea. So that automatically doesn't fulfill the aspirations of both populations. So let's build a reality based on the needs that we have, which are different. And then if you look at the injustices that Palestinians face, which are horrible and real, and you look at the injustices that Israelis face, which are horrible and real, which are not the same and are not a competition either of saying, oh, one's suffering more than the other, Ending them also isn't mutually exclusive. So at the end of the day, there's actually nothing preventing us from creating this reality than us deciding that we want to live in this reality. Once we begin to decide that this is what we want, then we will start the journey and the process to create it, which won't be easy and won't be quick, but will be doable. And for a lot of people who say there's no way for Israelis and Palestinians to come together, well, I would say this. If uh, the German civilization can go from killing 6 million Jews to 10 years later supporting the state of Israel, I think definitely as cousins we can find ways to transcend the differences of our parents and grandparents' generation and create a better future for our children and our grandchildren. Baruch Hashem. Thank you. Rudy, thank you so much. I'm going to make sure people uh, know where they can follow you. Uh, I'm going to hit stop recording right now just so I can give you a proper thank you off. But brother, thank you so, so much. I sincerely appreciate you. Of course.